Well, good morning. As we continue to worship, I just can't thank Kyle enough for the songs that he chose this morning that just are amazingly perfect for what we're going to be talking about this morning, which is grace. If you take your Bibles and go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 5, because that is the text that we're going to be preaching from this morning, we're going to be diving into. By the beginning of the 16th century, Europe had been without a Bible for the people for about a thousand years. The people of Europe at that time never heard the words of 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Instead of the word of God, they were left to understand that God is a God who enables people to earn their salvation, to merit grace, if you will. As one of their own theologians of the day put it, God will not deny grace to those who do their best. Yet, how could you be sure that you had really done your best? How could you tell if you had become the sort of person, the sort of just person, who merited salvation? Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk who asked those very questions. And ultimately, what he found made the difference between human hopelessness and human happiness. So what is it that he found? He found grace. He found grace in the pages of Scripture. He found grace in Romans. So what is grace? You've heard it probably said, made into an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. It is absolutely that. Or you've heard it said that we are receiving what we don't deserve. Absolutely. It's also told that it's the flip side of mercy, which would then not be getting what we do deserve. Ultimately, what we're going to see today is that grace is much more than any of these definitions can really encompass. Among Protestants, especially Protestants today, there is a popular misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the Roman Catholic Church's teaching, especially its teaching on grace. Sometimes it is said that Rome teaches that we are saved by works, but Protestants teach that we are saved by grace. This statement, as common as it is, is a slander against the Roman Catholic Church. Rome does not teach that one is saved by works apart from grace. It does not teach that one is saved by works apart from the grace of God. She does, in fact, teach that one is saved by the grace of God. And you may say, whoa, Brian, what are you saying? One word. It is one word that the Reformers held so dearly to that Rome does not. And that word is alone. God saves by grace alone, not grace and works. It is sola gratia, grace alone that saves. The sinner is saved by the grace of God, his unmerited favor alone. This doctrine means that nothing the sinner does commends him to the grace of God and that the sinner does not cooperate with God in order to merit his salvation. 
Salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign gift of God to the unworthy and undeserving. Rome, however, would combine God's grace with man's cooperation in order to merit justification. The only thing that comes from this is insecurity. How much does one have to cooperate in order to merit salvation? What activities grant greater degrees of grace? What activities grant greater degrees of merit? How will I know when I've done enough? These are the questions that Martin Luther asked in the 16th century. These are the questions that Roman Catholics ask today. Last week, we looked at four questions about the saving righteousness of God through faith alone from Romans 1 and Romans 3. Today, I would like to look at four assurances of salvation by grace alone. Four assurances of salvation by grace alone. Let me give them to you. Grace alone provides peace. We're going to see that in Romans 5.1. Grace alone provides peace. Secondly, grace alone provides security. We see that in the first half of verse 2. Third, grace alone provides hope. The rest of verse 2 all the way through verse 5. And lastly, grace alone provides reconciliation. We see that in Romans 5, 6 through 11. Four assurances, peace, security, hope, and reconciliation. Let's read Romans 5 together, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this... But we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This section of Romans, from Romans chapter 5 to Romans chapter 8, is where Paul begins to discuss three distinct but complementary aspects of salvation. He's looking at justification by grace alone through faith alone. Those great doctrines of grace where we see that this is God's declaration that the believer is made right with him and it stands in a right relationship with him. It is a legal declaration that is instantaneous and complete in the moment that it is done. It is absolute. It is provided 100% by grace and received by those who come to Christ empty-handed. 
Paul also shows us that there is union with Christ. That phrase, in Christ, occurs often in this text and in this section of Romans. Believers are brought into a vital relationship with Christ. From Adam's fallen humanity of unregenerate reprobates into Christ's redeemed humanity. Righteous wretches, if you will. Christ is now the representative head. And thirdly, we are filled with the Spirit. This is beginning the work of sanctification, which occurs after justification. He's beginning his work of sanctification in that we are in position, set apart in Christ. In its progression, in that we have work to do. We have work to do along with the Spirit and that the Father has prepared for us to do in order to become more like his Son. And in its perfection in glory. And all of this occurs after justification. We don't become sanctified in order to be justified. We are justified so that we can do these things that sanctify us, that set us apart for Christ. What I want to focus on today is just that first aspect of salvation. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone. So let's look at these four assurances of salvation by grace alone. The first one, grace alone provides peace. Look at verse 1 of Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. It is a past event that, that realizes a present peace that leads to a future glory that are all inseparable. Look at what the text says. Having been justified. This is a definite declaration of what has had happened, that of what has happened in the past was made once and for all, and the result of that past declaration in eternity past is a present peace. And it is a present peace with God. This is no mere provisional peace that we have to work at to maintain. This is not a subjective feeling of being at peace and feeling good. This is an objective, positional peace. This is that we know we are no longer at war with God. He is no longer at war with us. His wrath does not abide on us. And that peace is provided by God for us through no merit of our own. It is given to us entirely by the gracious actions of a loving God. This is the peace of knowing that, that the believer will never lose what he has been given by God. We can never lose this peace. What kind of peace did we have prior to the gracious actions of a loving God? What kind of peace did we have? I think Paul gives us a little commentary on Romans 5 in Ephesians 2. Flip it over to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Look at this, these verses. This is the kind of peace that we had before God intervened in our lives. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There was no peace. There was only law. There was only the revelation that God, God's wrath rests on the lawbreaker. There was no peace. We were dead under the yoke of sin and under the wrath of God. There was no peace. Spiritually speaking, we were corpses in the ground without Jesus. What can corpses do? They can rot. That's all they can do. They can no more draw near to God than summon the strength to get out of the grave. Only God does that. That is how bad off we are outside of Christ. There is no peace. Grace alone provides that peace. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because of him and him alone that we can experience the peace with God. Secondly, grace alone provides security. Grace alone provides security. Look at verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word stand is very important in this text, in this verse. We have to stand on something. And that something better be solid footing. It better be sure footing. Because we are going to experience tough times in this life. The foundation of our stance, the foundation of our justification is grace alone. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We don't merit it on our own. We can't purchase it through indulgences. And the source of that grace is Christ. Look at the first part of verse 2. Through whom also, referring back to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we have received this undeserved free gift. It may be better to say that Christ is the undeserved free gift of God towards sinners. That Christ is the personification of grace. He is the solid foundation that regenerated reprobates are standing upon. This is like the wise men at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 who dug down deep into the soil, into that rock, to go all the way down to bedrock, to anchor his foundation for his house. Because he knew that the storm was coming. He knew that the winds were going to blow. He knew that his house was going to be buffeted. But because he is anchored on the bedrock of Christ, he is not going to be blown over. Think of what Peter said in Matthew 16. Coming off the mountain, who do people say I am? Some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, some say you're this person. But who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, I am. And on that rock, on that rock, Peter, I am going to build my church. The rock is the confession of Christ. He is 
our grace. Imagine what our life would be like without grace, without Christ. Trying to keep the law to maintain a right standing before the just and righteous lawgiver. If keeping my salvation were up to me, I would be miserable because I would lose it every day. I can't do it. Luther saw this and began to talk about grace this way. He said, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. That's what Luther saw as grace and how he understood grace. Here, grace is not about God building on our righteous deeds or helping us to perform them. Remember what scripture says about our righteous deeds. They are as filthy rags before the holy and just and righteous God. Luther began to see that God was the one who justifies the ungodly, not one who simply recognizes and rewards those who manage to make themselves justifiable. God is not one who must build on our foundation. God creates out of nothing. He doesn't need us to build a foundation for him to build on. For Luther, it meant that instead of looking to God for assistance and then ultimately relying on himself, he was turning to rely entirely on Christ, in whom all righteousness is achieved. He would say this. He would say, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. For Luther and the other reformers, grace was not merely a thing at all, a quote-unquote thing, an object. It is the personal kindness of God by which he does not merely enable us, but actually rescues us and gives us himself. It may be said, to be more precise, that there is no such quote-unquote thing as grace. There is only Christ, who is the blessing of God freely given to us. That being the case, Luther tended not to talk so much about grace in the abstract, but preferred to talk much of Christ. That is the foundation of our peace. That is the foundation of our justification. That is the grace that God has given us. He has given us Christ. Another German theologian in the 20th century made much of what was becoming known as cheap grace. And this German theologian would know what cheap grace looked like as he lived through the horrors of World War II. Grace is costly. It cost God his son, Jesus, on the cross. It cost Jesus perfect communion with God the Father on that cross while he was enduring the wrath of God for those three hours, taking on our sin in order to give us his righteousness. That theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. The world goes on in the same old way, and we are still sinners, even in the best life, as Luther said. 
Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Grace without Jesus Christ is exactly what the reformers were moving away from. Salvation by grace alone was another way for them to say salvation by Christ alone. Luther says, through faith in Christ, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. The great hymn, in the chorus of the great hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, the Sunday School hymn writer Henry Mote wrote, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. He understood this principle in Romans 5.2, that our foundation, our security, is standing on the solid rock of Christ alone. Again, Paul in Ephesians 2, I think gives us a great commentary on this section. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, if you write in your Bibles, circle that, those two words, put a square around them, asterisk, highlight, do something. I think these are probably some of the two most important words in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see that phrase, by grace you have been saved? It's in parentheses in my Bible, probably in yours. Because Paul was saying the same thing two times in different ways. By making us alive together with Christ, he is saying, by grace you have been saved. Christ is that grace. Christ is that foundational grace. Christ is that security that grace provides. By grace you have been saved. So, grace alone provides peace. Grace alone provides security. Thirdly, Grace alone provides hope. Grace alone provides hope. Look at the rest of verse 2 and, and forward. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We are looking ahead to future glory. And Paul here goes in a complete circle. He talks about hope. We exult in hope of the glory of God. And then in tribulations, knowing that that brings about perseverance. And then proven character. And proven character brings about hope. 
we're back to where we began. And that, beloved, is the Christian life. Do you see the work of God here in this passage? Look at what God is doing in us in this passage. We exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. Why in the world does Paul say we can exult in our tribulations? Tribulations are soul-stirring events. They are earth-shattering, if you are, if you will. They are events that cause us to question what is going on in the world. What is going on in my country? What is going on in my city? What is going on with me? These tribulations bring about perseverance. What is perseverance? Perseverance is a patient endurance that relies fully on God's sovereign plan for our lives. Job never knew what he was going through. Job never understood the why he was going through it. And even when Job got to talk to God, God never explained it to him. And as a matter of fact, when God confronted Job, what did God say? Who is this that darkens my doors with counsel, with knowledge, with instruction? Are you really going to instruct me? And how did Job respond? I am nothing. I am dust. I am ashes. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I spoke where I should not have spoke. And then God goes on to explain his sovereignty. His sovereignty. He never tells Job why I put you through these tribulations, Job. But you endured to the end. You persevered to the end. You overcame. And that brings about proven character. Perseverance brings about proven character. What does proven character look like? It looks like Job. It also looks like this from 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. Peter writes this. In this, in your salvation, in your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What does proving character look like? The salvation of your souls. It looks like future glory. It looks like perfect communion with Christ in heaven. It looks like what James talks about in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When will we experience that? We will not experience that here on this earth, but we will experience it in glory. 
we will experience that in heaven. And that is where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the reality of a future glory. Proven character brings about hope. This hope is in the reality of future glory in that we as believers get to spend eternity with God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This hope does not disappoint. It is perfect communion with God. This is being able to abide in Christ perfectly. John 15. We put God's work in us through Christ on display for all to see. Again, that same hymn that Henry Moat wrote. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Again, Paul in Ephesians as a commentary on this passage in Romans 5. Ephesians 2.7, he says this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, that is eternity. Eternity with Christ. Grace alone provides peace. Grace alone provides security. Grace alone provides hope. And lastly, grace alone provides reconciliation. Look at verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Christ is the grace through whom we are reconciled to God. And God proves this to us in this passage. God proves that the timing was perfect. Look at verse 6. At the right time. At the right time. His timing was perfect. Christ died at just the right time in human history. The timing was God's time, not our time, not anybody's time, not the prophet's time, not Moses' time, not Elijah's time, not John the Baptist's time. It was God's time. And God reconciles sinners through grace alone in his perfect timing. God proves to us that the exchange was magnificent. Look at this. He says, my sin for Christ's righteousness in verse 6 Christ died for the ungodly. Why? Why would Christ do that? He took on my sin and gave me his righteousness. God proves that the recipients were helpless. Again, verse 6. While we were still helpless, we were hopeless. We were 
powerless. We were ungodly sinners who were enemies of God. We had nothing good to offer God. And yet, he gave us everything in Christ. Showering us with the gracious gift of his son. God proves to us that the magnitude of that gracious gift was enormous. Look at verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To die for unrighteous reprobates shows a love that goes far beyond the best and deepest sacrifice known to humanity. We love our children as parents and we will sacrifice greatly for them. This sacrifice trumps that to infinity. There is no greater act of gracious reconciliation in human history than God sending his son into time and space to live a perfect life and die a perfect death in order to reconcile us to him. The proof is the cross. The proof is the cross. Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The shed blood of Christ on the cross is the proof that grace alone reconciles sinners. God proves it to us in his timing, his exchange, the recipients, the magnitude, and ultimately the cross. Again, Paul in Ephesians 2. Listen to what he says. You know these verses by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The greatest gift that anyone has ever given is the gift of salvation by grace alone. The gift of Christ dying on the cross on your behalf, on my behalf, in order to take on our sin. So, what do you do now? What do you do with this? If you do not have peace, if you are not standing on the solid ground of Christ alone, if you do not have hope, if you know that you are not reconciled with God, accept God's grace and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Grace alone provides peace. Trust in Christ for peace that passes all understanding. Grace alone provides security. Trust in Christ for eternal security, knowing that all that the Father has given to Christ, he will never lose. Grace alone provides hope. Trust in Christ for hope in the face of ultimate evil. Grace alone provides reconciliation. Trust in Christ 
as the only mediator between God and man. That man, Christ Jesus, who reconciled us to the Father. No other belief system in the world offers what God offers through justification by grace alone. If you have put your trust in Christ, there is still work to be done. There is work that you need to do as a result of God's grace, not in order to earn God's grace. And it is the work that he has already prepared for you to do. Going back to Romans 5, verse 11. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is our opportunity to glorify God with our lives, to glorify God in our workplace, to glorify God in school, in the home, in the community, to show people who we are as Bible-believing Christians saved by grace, to lovingly show them the Father and draw them Hopefully the Father draws them to himself and we have the opportunity to participate in that work. Again, Paul in Ephesians 2, this commentary, he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. These are works that we do that God has prepared for us that we do with him. We do not earn God's grace. We receive it empty-handed and live it in our lives every single day. Would you pray with me? Father, we are both emboldened and humbled when we consider how we have been justified by grace through faith. We've been introduced into your matchless grace and have been given a strong and secure standing before you And now we have every reason to rejoice in the hope of one day receiving unimaginable glory that we do not deserve. As joint heirs with Christ, to whom all glory rightly belongs. How amazing it is that when we were helpless and ungodly, your son, Jesus Christ, shed his blood for us. Not only saving us from your wrath, but also reconciling us to yourself. You chose us, called us, and redeemed us, O God. And you have accepted us in the beloved, your only begotten Son, our Savior and Lord, Christ Jesus. We therefore owe Christ our most heartfelt love, singular commitment, highest honor, and deepest reverence. We are too easily distracted, too easily discouraged, too easily disturbed by the trials, temptations, and trivialities of daily life in this fallen world. We are neither as poor in spirit nor as pure in heart as we ought to be. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our deeply ingrained self-love and purge all such sins from our hearts. We have found in Christ all our happiness and hope. Grant us by grace the singleness of heart to keep our minds fixed on him, our lives surrendered to him, our words devoted to his honor, 
and our hand committed to his work. To know your son is truly a foretaste of heaven's glory. May we have a hunger to experience that heaven on earth in all its fullness until we enter the great heaven of heavens and worship and serve our Lord and Savior with true perfection. And it is in his blessed name that we pray all of these things. Amen.